Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Hey, this is Brian January, and you're listening to Dishin' and Slippin'. Hi, everybody. It's David Siegel welcoming you to this week's Dishin' and Swishin' podcast. And we are in the home stretch of the college basketball season, and it's tournament time. And what we like to do each year before the brackets come out so that you can help prepare and understand the scenarios a little bit is we, we like to bring in ESPN's bracketologist, Charlie Cream. And it's a pleasure to welcome Charlie back for his annual visit to Dishon and Swishin. Charlie, good morning. Thank you for getting up early with us today and being a part of the podcast again. Oh, no problem at all. I love it. Um, I love chatting every year. This is, uh, this is a lot of fun. It's a fun conversation we always have. Well, let's get started and start right at the top lines. And one of the things that always interests me is now I understand that, you know, the West Coast people are going to yell and scream that there's, you know, East Coast biased all the time. But, you know, you put a team out in Stockton. You put a regional out in Stockton, California. And when you don't have a number one team that's coming out of the Pac-12 or someplace out West, it means that you somebody has to do a lot of traveling to get out there. And, you know, this year – Right now it's looking like, according to the brackets, the way you have it, that Baylor, by uh, losing in their conference tournament, ends up going to Stockton. You know, it's an, it's one of those things that, you know, there is no easy solution, but sometimes you wonder if it wouldn't be better to move the regional a little closer than California. Yeah, it would be, given – and it's not, it's not really a – I don't think – maybe I'm being naive here, I don't know, but I don't necessarily think it's a West Coast, East Coast thing – it's a math thing. There are just more schools in the eastern and central time zones than there are in the other two time zones. So you, your opportunity for, for a, a situation like we're having this year or, you know, many times in years past where, you know, teams are going to have to go somewhere reasonably far away or go more than one time zone away is – happens and happens a lot it's, and it's just I think it's just a sheer numbers game I, I think you're kind of caught if you're the NCAA because you know you obviously you want the game to grow and you and you, if you just keep it to certain areas every single year then you're not really expanding it geographically you're not exposing new fans potentially to marquee games and the regionals are the, the most marquee of games outside of the final four that that the game has today so I think you are caught, and I think you do. I think, to some degree, the women's tournament is still in experimental phase. I mean, we've seen changes to formats over the years, and I think we will continue to see that. I hope we actually see continued tweaks, and this is this is certainly one of them. Um, and, and sometimes you catch a break. If one of the Pac-12 teams had been the on the one line, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation probably. And that was and I, that was actually close to happening. With Oregon State, it could have happened with Oregon State this year if a couple of different things had happened. But yeah, here we are, and someone's going to have to travel. And um, but you know, it, it's, it hasn't proven to be all that detrimental. Let, you know, for instance, last year Washington went the other way into Lexington and still made the final four. Now they weren't a top line team; they were they were seventeenth. But but nonetheless, the traveling, in fact, they had two major trips, didn't didn't seem to hurt them at all. 
This is true. So that's something that we will keep an eye on and see what happens with that. Now, of course, then the other question that as I look at the brackets as they sit right now, the number two seed out in Stockton is Mississippi State. Now, there are two Pac-12 seeds, number two seeds in Stanford and Oregon State. And, you know, the question then becomes to me, you know, the where does the S-curve fall in terms of importance alongside the geography because obviously, you know, the two Stanford and Oregon State are the lower two, I would say, probably, or, uh, two, well, one, it looks like one and three uh, when you're rating the twos. They're, they're the bottom one and the bottom right. three. So they get moved to the eastern seaboard, and Mississippi State gets shuffled out to the western seaboard. <laughs> so, so, you know, in, in going in the context of geography and what you were saying about growing the game and these being marketable, you know, where is the difference fall between the S-curve and geography? Well, I think a few years ago, the committee, the NCAA, got carried away with the geography part of it, and it created a lot more angst and anger, frankly, amongst people who follow the game when they were, they were going out of their way to and, – and it didn't – they're going out of their way to keep teams on the top line geographically more favorable – but it wasn't that the bracket was not balanced. It didn't. It didn't seem like. And I, and I think they've the last couple of years. They, I think, smartly have gone more toward staying true to the S curve, which is kind of which is basically what's reflected in in the bracket that you just discussed that I that I most recently have. And I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to follow what the committee does, and that's the the path they've been on. So that's why you have these kind of these you know cross sectional teams and, and keep, you know, maybe teams going going across the country a little bit. Um, but I think that's better. I think ultimately we, nobody yells and screams about travel for teams. And sometimes coaches complain, for sure. Uh, but I think in the end, the end of the game, everybody wants as fair and equitable a tournament as possible. And I, I think a couple of years we really didn't get that. Um, just as an example, um, going back a few years now, but they, one year they put, when Texas A&M was still in the Big 12, they put Baylor as the top seed and A&M as the two seed in that Midwest-type region, and nobody liked that idea. This was a, they, they, the two teams had played each other three times already. Um, it, it, the Baylor was uh, the number, they were probably the number one, yeah, they were the number one overall seed that year, and A&M was definitely not the eighth seed. They were better than that, so it, it didn't seem fair. So I think, as I said, seeing teams, even if they have to move, they have to travel some, it's it's better that way. And then, and let's face it, these same teams are getting two home games to start with. So this isn't we're not asking all that much. It's one trip typically, and that's about it. Now, also on the same front, then uh, you mentioned. Put it in the year that A and M knocked off Baylor, of course, and then of course we also had a year when UConn and Rutgers played four years, exactly. four times. Uh, what what is the goal in keeping teams apart that have played each other and also teams that are in the same conference? Do they try and keep them apart through up until the regionals, just through the first round? I mean, what is the goal when you get conferences like the ACC with eight and SEC and seven and all? Uh, 
it's tough to totally separate everybody. What are they trying? Where do they try and first make matchups that are familiar? Well, they they try to avoid repeat matchups from from a conference perspective. Let's clarify: uh, teams within the same conference until the Elite Eight. It, and then if the math works out, then, then they can do it. For instance, you mentioned eight teams from the ACC. So what you see in my bracket is two teams from the ACC in each region. Um, now, in terms of repeating regular season matchups or recent tournament matchups, that's more along the, that's really more along the lines of the first two rounds. And sometimes that's not possible. The, it's, it seems like the priority is always with the conference and keeping those teams spread out. And, and, and then from there, if you can manage to get teams who played each other in the regular season, who played each other in last year's tournament apart, then you, then you, you can do that as well. But, but sometimes it's, those two things are in conflict, and the conference thing usually wins out in that conflict. And, and sometimes the, 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 the second part of it is the repeat regular season matchups are just not possible to avoid. Yeah, I mean, you, depending on who your schedule is, I mean, I think Maryland could probably avoid playing most of them because they didn't play them during the year. <laughs> but you get a UConn, <laughs> UConn's gonna, and UConn's going to play somebody somewhere that they already ran into. Exactly. But, you, but if they can keep it to, um, you know, until the Elite Eight, that's, that's the goal. It's not like that. That's not always. Well, in terms of the regular season, as I said, that they, if they, for a UConn, if they can avoid it until the Sweet 16, that's usually something that they're going to aim for. But if they're playing somebody in a conference, which is not likely that deep into the tournament, then, then it would be, yeah, be the Elite Eight. But you're right. UConn plays just about everybody outside of the league. So eventually there's going there's to be a, a clash of that. And it's it's important, but it's not, it's not essential to the bracket. I think the... Uh, and, and I, I go back to what I said earlier. The, the committee has done a better job at making this, at making the bracket better and as balanced as possible and as fair as possible. Uh, as, and, and some of those things are sometimes in conflict, but they've done a really good job of balancing it through the last two years. Uh, I, I haven't actually had two, maybe two, even three years. I haven't had as many. Uh, quibbles with what the committee's done than I, I seem to have every single year leading up to, um, you know, probably 2015 or so. Let's talk about a couple of specifics and some specific issues. One, one that comes up, it seems every year, is the location of a lower seed ending up hosting the higher seed, at least into, when you get into the regionals, if that, at that level at least. Uh, Ignoring the whole Stanford thing, we'll get to that later. But, for example, Lexington has Kentucky as a number four seed. They could end up hosting Notre Dame in Lexington. You know, you're looking at, you know, granted Stockton is in Los Angeles, but UCLA uh, potentially hosting Baylor. Uh, is there anything that the committee could do or should look at when it comes to, you know, the the difference between actually putting people there that host Louisville is in a similar situation. Well, now Louisville's going to go to Oklahoma City. Uh, so, is it? A, do they should they be focusing on moving those teams out for the sake of parity, or do they leave them there for the sake of attendance? I, I don't know that the I don't know the NCAA has a great answer for that. To be honest with you, that's the that's the big question, and we've seen it happen 
kind of both ways. And I, I go back to the to the S curve, and, and I think what we've seen in, in recent brackets, probably the last two, is that they've everything they've done has been more reflective of that than those other factors. It's certainly helpful when you can put more people in the seats. And and these types of things, you know, having a Kentucky in the Lexington Regional or a UCLA in the Stockton Regional will help, you know, certainly helps that. And, and I don't know that there's a great answer to that because the game needs people in the seats. So when those games are on TV, uh, even if you're not going to the game, when you're watching on TV and you see that lower bowl and everything behind the basket is empty, it's, it's not good. It's not it's not great, and and the NCAA is keenly aware of that. Um, so I don't think it's such, I don't think it's such a bad thing to have necessarily teams that are really close to home in the regionals. Um, I, I don't think it's really I honestly don't think it's really hurt the tournament all that much. The best example last year, Kentucky was playing in Lexington, and they didn't even get the, the higher seed when it came time. When it came time to the, for the biggest game, they got Washington on their home floor, a seven seed, and they didn't beat them. So it's not it's the home the home court thing is not overwhelming the game, and the better teams on that given day seem to still be winning. Now, yeah, there's some there's going to be some, every so often there's going to be some inequities in that, and you're going to see a team have a huge advantage by playing on their home court. But I think we I don't think we've seen it so much. To say that it, this is this, it's hurting the it's hurting the fairness of things because teams have been able to win when they when they were quote unquote the road team even in the regionals. Yeah, I think that you know if you're a number one, if you're in this case say say a Notre Dame that's going to probably end up in Lexington, you should be able to win there. I mean, you, you're a number one seed for a reason. You're one of the top four teams in the country. That means you should be able to win a game against you know a number sixteen ranked team or, you know, 13 to 16 ranked team uh, to, if you intend to go to the Final Four. Exactly, yeah. Like, like you bring up Notre Dame. Notre Dame, uh, you know, Oklahoma City is not Baylor's home court, but they but Baylor plays in Oklahoma City quite often in the Big 12 tournament. Uh, a couple of years ago, Notre Dame beat Baylor in a regional final in Oklahoma City. Um, so you're right. I mean, if you're, if, you're the, if you're the better team, if you're good enough, that's something you, you'll be able to overcome. I, I think it's it's the teams and the coaches who dwell on that too much that are the ones that get burned by it. The ones who just go out and play and prepare are the ones that are fine and get through if they truly deserve to, to be moving on. So then the next thing that I have to ask, you know, we talked about putting people in the seats and all and the locations, which brings me to the first two rounds. Now, we have situations here where some teams – will not know until the last possible minute. And as we know, the committee, the NCAA, does not put tickets on sale, even for the people that know they're hosting, until everything is written up. Is the committee, uh, from what you've heard, are they satisfied with the way this is working out? I mean, there's two sides to this. For one thing, Ohio State you know, may have gotten lucky with the DePaul knockoff and now snuck into a home game. We'll be interested in seeing what their crowd is like on that circumstances. And up here, we hear a lot of complaints from people that want to buy their tickets for the home games in stores, but can't buy them because they won't put them on sale until the last minute. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that because I, I, I do think the, I do think the NCAA is satisfied with this current setup. They was it something this summer where it was discussed, and and you know maybe that's just the the standard answer. There, as long as it's they're continuing on with something, they're not going to criticize it or bash it. But I, but they do seem happy with it, and, and frankly, I, I I'm okay with it too. Um, Going back to the empty seats thing, yeah, you, you could if you do predetermined sites, you can sell tickets ahead of time. But you ended up with some predetermined sites with teams that had no relevance to that area whatsoever, and were people really in droves going out and buying tickets ahead of time anyway? They weren't because if they were, they were eating them or selling them because they weren't being used. <laughs> those, those arenas were largely empty. Right, and and I and I think to me that's a bigger problem than you know having to put tickets on sale and only having three days in which to sell them. I, I it seems it seems as though the teams that are hosting are doing a good enough job at getting the word out and getting pe- getting tickets sold and getting people in the arenas. Maybe not to the level the NCAA wants even still, but in, in a better set of circumstances than when you did predetermined sites and you had. As I said, no team playing in that site that, that was appealing at all to that local fan base. You know what I'd like to see them do is I like to set up the way that they have it, but if you're like a number one or two seed, you know, one of the top eight teams in the country, you're going to be hosting because we're going to have 16 sites. So you know that you're going to be hosting. The NCAA, in my opinion, should allow those schools the advantage of you've earned this, you start selling, you can start selling your tickets you know, a few days before things go on sale for everybody else. Leave the threes and fours if if you if you want to leave some suspense. But you know, you know, you look at a UConn and you know Oregon State and you know all of the Baylor and Notre Dame. They know they're hosting. I mean, come on, you know, South Carolina. Give them give them the break and let them sell their tickets in advance. Yeah, they could do something like, and, and this is part of the tweaking that I think continues to go on. But they're doing those top sixteen reveals. Maybe what they could do is they could add one or, or shift the dates and how they're doing it and add one right before the conference tournaments, the big, you know, the Power Five conference tournaments start and do a, a do a an addendum where they do a a, a reveal of the top eight and say, well, you know what, it, it's not going to matter what happens in your conference tournaments because you're in the top eight, you're not going to fall out of hosting circumstances. So here, you're in the top eight, go ahead and start selling. They, they, maybe they could do something like that, and maybe that's a viable alternative to what they're doing now and kind of a compromise on, on some of that. I like that. We should do, we but should push them for that. I like that one. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe it's something that could get, could get discussed. I, I don't know. I don't know at the NCAA, I don't know how much of a problem they consider the, the shorter window on ticket sales or if, if they feel that, that that is hurting ticket sales at all, even if, you know, some of the, the kind of the higher profile programs that, that typically do draw well. Um, but if, if they do, perhaps that's that's one solution. Um, it takes a little bit, you know, takes a little intrigue out of the next couple of weeks. But I, but most of us who follow it closely enough kind of know that, as you said, we we, we know who those essentially who those top eight are. Um, and and at least if you're in your top eight, you're not, you're not going to fall out of the top sixteen by even losing in an early round in your conference tournament. Right, and you know, and maybe it doesn't sell more tickets, but it certainly create it gives the those places a chance to create more excitement. You know, right. you know even you know stores is going to sell a good amount of tickets regardless 
but it would be nice to be able to, you know, have something from the end of the conference this time right now, the end of the conference tournament. They should be able to spend this week hyping that they're going to, you know, come to the NCAA first round games here instead of everybody just sitting dormant. You're right. Take it easy. Because of the way they structured uh, conference tournament in the big leagues, essentially to be away from the competition from the men and giving giving themselves a little bit more of a, a nice window to, to get some attention, can take further advantage of that and spend this week where it's, for a lot of leagues it's just dead time. And a lot of these teams it's just dead time. And take advantage and, and use it as a marketing week. You're right. I think, I think the, that there's something to be said there. And, and maybe something to be developed there because the, the women's game has now, for, for most fans, the women's game has now gone dormant. And, and, and it's there's got to be a way to keep it alive, at least in some markets, and that would probably be it. Hey, here's, we'll put, it would have been off the, they don't have to put all the tickets on sale. Maybe if there's a, you know, just a, a selection of tickets. But, it's a, but as you said, it's a way to promote. You can get signage out. You can get um, you can get radio promotion out. You can spend an entire week on the local sports channel in you know fill in the blank market to talk about hey buy, buy your tickets now. So you know maybe we're onto something here. At least and I said the game is being and the tournament specifically is being tweaked and evolving and and that could be just one more aspect. You know it's 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 not the same as the men's tournament and I don't think the NCAA can can, can function as if we're modeling it after the men it has to be their own model. And the women's game has done a good job in general of doing its own thing. The quarters is was a tremendous move. The, the call time out in advance the ball is a, is a tremendous addition to the game. These are things that the men are stuck in the mud on, frankly. But there are certain things with the tournament that I think the women could do even more creatively, whether it's in marketing or whether it's in structure, that would, that would do do even more for the game than what's currently happening. Now, you had mentioned the reveals, and here's a question for you that obviously there's no real answer to, but it was clear in the reveals that a message was being sent to programs like Maryland about you better up your out-of-conference schedule and do something about it. Through their success in going through the Big Ten season and through the inability of other teams to win their conference schedules. We look now and Maryland's a number two seed. So did that go for not them trying to send that message? Because if you look at who the number one seeds are, maybe you could have made an argument that Maryland moves up if they had a tougher schedule ahead of Baylor because they didn't win their conference tournament. But the other three uh, all pretty much earned their spots there. Did that go by the wayside by Maryland probably being a number two anyway, other than the fact that you know maybe they're listed as not the top number two? I don't, I don't know. That's a good question, and I don't know that there's an actual answer um, because I, you know, I think Maryland would have liked to have been a one, and being a two is is yeah. Brenda. I don't. Let me kind of back up a little bit. I don't know that Brenda Freeze cares all that much. It's, it's nice for a recruiting thing or it's nice for the marketing thing, but in terms of competitiveness, I, I don't think coaches who are truly competitive 
even if they really think about it and, and, and get past the prestige of the number one seed in terms of winning the tournament, and, I, and she's actually come out and said some of this, like the seed isn't as important as the placement or the matchups. And, and really in terms of getting to a Final Four, having a chance to win a national championship, she's right. That, that's exactly the case. If you're, uh, if you're the number five overall team and, and you're not the number four overall team, you're, if, if we're following the S-curve, you're still in the same region. You're still matched up with the same, you know, other, other top seed. Ultimately, if, if things go according to form, that's the team you're going to have to beat to get to a Final Four anyway. So is it, is it really that? Is it really vital? Even sometimes the two and three situation, the regional final, still going to be that same team. Or, I'm sorry, regional semifinal, still going to be that same team. Still have to get over that hurdle. Um, it really comes down to, I think, more placement and, uh, and the matchups that you're given in your draw. Um, but I don't think, I don't think the, the, the strength of schedule thing really went by the wayside. I do think perhaps if Maryland had played a tougher schedule, they could have been, they could have been on the one line. But it wasn't even so much their non-conference schedule, or I mean, certainly that was a, that contributed in a, in a important and big way. But it was kind of a, a confluence of events too. The Big Ten was not that good this year. They didn't get a lot of help that maybe in past years they would have gotten to some somewhat negate the the weakness of the non conference schedule to say they had better competition, you know, better RPI number competition within the Big Ten. So they never were able to elevate all I mean they elevated, but it didn't elevate all that much. If they had if the Big Ten had been a deeper league with more higher quality teams, more teams in the top 50, we'll say, then that it, may, it may not have mattered on the non-conference schedule, and they may have been able to have the kind of profile that, and, and, and of course, having to beat those same, those same teams if they were better, but having the kind of record they had and winning the Big Ten tournament, they may have been able to elevate to, uh, to the one line. Um, so it, was, it wasn't, it was not a conference schedule, sure, but it was, frankly, it was also the Big Ten that hurt them, but in, in the big picture, did it really hurt them? One, two, three. Sometimes it matters. Sometimes it, it doesn't. In the case of Maryland this year, I'm not entirely sure it's going to matter all that much. And you know, actually, from the from the standpoint of the Maryland fans and such, it's better that they didn't get the number one seed because they'll probably end up in Lexington, which is a whole lot easier to get to, even if it were Oklahoma City. You know, those are all a lot easier for Maryland fans to travel to than uh, Stockton. Exactly. And it's something that, that, that fans kind of need to keep that perspective, too. You, you, know, you kick and scream, kick and scream about where you're placed and you know, what, what, you're, what the number says before your name when, when Selection Monday comes around. Well, we should have been we – we're not a 7C. We should have been a 5. That's ridiculous. But if you were – if you were a five, you wouldn't have. You would have had to travel because the way the bracket broke down, you would have had to go across the country to play as a seven. You get to stay in your same time zone, and maybe you could drive to the game. And some sometimes fans lose that that perspective on it. Um, it's fun. It's 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 fun debate about seats, and it makes my job even more interesting when people get excited about it. So I don't want to downplay it that much, but we, we got to keep big picture in mind, and fans should keep big picture in mind and say. You know, it's it's nicer to be close. We can go to the games, and it's nicer for the. For, it's a better, maybe a better, easier experience for the players and the coaching staff. 
to not have to travel as much. And the number kind of doesn't matter really once the tournament starts anyway. Now, the other question I want to ask you about, now in reading about the uh, the piece you had on ESPN talking about Ohio State moving up, and then also then reading the next one about the West Virginia Stanford conundrum. Uh, you know, Ohio State, I understood the move up because of DePaul losing, but then you get into the discussion and you made a comment in the West Virginia piece that, uh, even though they would be the number, the highest number two, number seven, then they are, uh, I'm sorry, Marquette, not West Virginia, Marquette being the highest number seven, they can't procedurally play against Stanford and host. And can you explain why that is? Well, it's uh, it's kind of you got to kind of connect the dots. It's, it's, so um, so so your your seven seeds would be um, would be ASU, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Marquette. You can't put ASU in that game, obviously, because Stanford is a Pac-12 team, so that takes them out. Um, Tennessee, you could theoretically, except Tennessee and Stanford played in the regular season. That's typically something that we talked about earlier, the committee tries to avoid that soon, that early in the tournament. West Virginia, so you, you put Marquette, so then you would have to put Marquette there, which is just as a, you know, as we're going through the process, so you put Marquette there because they are the highest. So then, but then West Virginia um, has to go, would then, would then go into the Oklahoma City region as the 7th seed there, except there's a conflict in that half of the bracket with Texas being the three. So West Virginia can't sit there. Um, you can't you can't put Arizona State there and move things around because Oregon State's also there. So there's a conflict there with the two seed and the seven seed. So Arizona State essentially has to go where they're placed in, the, in Stockton as the seven seed there. You could put, um, theoretically, you could put Tennessee in Oklahoma City and West Virginia in Lexington, and then have Marquette as the seven seed. Except Tennessee traveled out west last year in the in their opening rounds to to Tempe, and the, the committee also tries to keep teams from having to do that kind of travel in consecutive years. So if you're avoiding if you're avoiding pre or early season matchups, you're avoiding teams having to travel on back to back years that far. And you're keeping the principles and procedures alive, avoiding conflict conflicts within, you know, up until up until the Elite Eight. The only choice to go in that Bridgeport regional as the seven seed, where and then in the sub regional where Stanford cannot host is West Virginia. I hope that wasn't massively confusing for everybody to hear, but that's a little bit of the, that's the process that I go through as I'm laying teams in the bracket, and the same thing that the committee has to go through is. Okay, that that move is blocked because of this. Okay, we, so we got to uh, do a different do a different thing. And oh, well, that one that one works. So let's see if we can improve upon that with something else. And ultimately, as I turn through all that, all has led to West Virginia having to be the team there. No, I think that's great. That's uh, thank you for explaining that because it gives people some insight into how difficult these these placements actually are. It's not as simple as just putting it on a dartboard and saying, okay, these are my sevens, let's spread them out to wherever they it fits best. There are definite procedural moves there that confound and confuse and make it more difficult to get it done. 
especially like you said, you know, you got Oregon State and Arizona State not being able to play each other right away, and then the same thing with Texas and West Virginia as a potential uh, advancement to uh, regional. So, you know, that that explains that very well. I do have one last really, really important question, and that is, you know, should Bryant knock off Robert Morris, my alma mater Bryant, do they end up going to Oklahoma City still, or do they end up coming to Bridgeport, uh, coming to stores and being in the Bridgeport Regional? My guess is it'll, it will shift, and Bryant would be in stores playing UConn next in the first round of the tournament. Well, the good news is I get to see him. The bad news is I get to see him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think in the case of Bryant uh, anybody would complain too much. Just making the tournament is, is nice, but, yeah, yeah it's just it's bringing the, the hogs to slaughter kind of situation there with having to play UConn right out of the gate. Well, it's, uh, it, it depends on your perspective. You, you know, you, you, you want to make the tournament and kind of get, get their name out there on that selection Monday because that's the moment in time that's super exciting. Or does the, does the losing by 50 or 60 a few days later kind of take the, take the excitement away from that? I, I, that's a question that I guess only, only Brian alongside like yourself. Hey, all I know is we're a business school and we can count the score. Okay. So. <laughs> well, you, well, you may need to. <laughs> Charlie, I want to thank you for taking time to go over all of this and, and spread the information the way you do. You know, I, I know that you know, you work on very little sleep at this time of year, and you're bouncing across country to different sites. And you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you on ESPN a lot in the coming days as we get ready for the big reveal on Monday. Well, I appreciate it, David. I always love talking to you. We get into some uh, deeper thinking issues uh, on your podcast here, and, and it's, uh, it's an enjoyable conversation, and I really appreciate you having me on every year. Well, it's my pleasure, and our listeners love having you, so we'll keep doing this as long as you keep doing it. Charlie, thanks again. You got it. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>